So welcome back to part two of our podcast this week here on Come and See Inspirations. My name is Shane Ambrose. Delighted to have you with us. And of course, our uh, master, Matra D, our, our, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Keeley, is keeping things going at the controls. Now, we're delighted to welcome to the program this morning a guest. <clears throat> for, um, for Irish people, we have been marking a decade of centenaries since 2012 to 2022, onwards in slightly to 2023, around significant events dealing with the, the establishment of the state and the, the, our, our independence, particularly from 1916. And a very familiar face, <coughs> which people got used to as part of those centenary dis- dis- celebrations, was that of our next guest, Father Seamus Madigan. Because Seamus was uh, the head chaplain to the Irish Defence Forces and was a part of the great celebrations that were led off by Oglig Naherin, the Irish Defence Forces, as part of the commemoration ceremonies. Seamus, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, good to be here, Shane. Thank you. Now, so we're going to have a bit of a conversation with you just kind of to share the story, as they say. Mm-hmm. John, uh, what way are we going to start this particular conversation? Start from the start, maybe that's a good place to start, as they say. Father Seamus, thanks again for for joining us. Um, I suppose to just to point out, Father Seamus is a local person from West Limerick, from Croke. Uh, nice to have somebody locally on the on the program. And of course, Father Father Seamus does have a vocation story. I suppose it all started off, I believe, many years ago, and your connection with with the Salesians. Can you fill us in on how that started and why and well, John, as you said, I'm, I'm from Croke, very proud uh, Croke man. And uh, I went to school um, after I was finished in Croke National School. Uh, I went to Palace Kenry. And while I was in Palace Kenry then with the Salesians, I suppose the idea of vocation would have uh, been there through various times, maybe even in second year the idea came, but went again. And But then when I went into the senior years, it came back maybe more seriously. And uh, yeah, so it's while I was with the Salesians in Palace Kenry, um, yeah, the idea of vocation would have come to the fore. And then I remember very clearly <laughs> in Christmas Eve of 1980 to go in to tell my parents uh, that I was thinking of maybe joining the Salesians and going off to train to be a priest. Mm-hmm. And I have to say the reaction was kind of, uh, let's say, uh, surprising uh, from them <laughs> because <laughs> my my dad, uh, you know, kind of stuff really expressed surprise, wondering what the hell I was talking about. And my mum asked me to keep it very quiet at the time. <laughs> so none of them wanted me basically to say anything about it at that yeah, stage. Yeah. But as time went on, they started to tell people and I started to tell people and uh, so, yeah, so September then 20, or uh, 1981, I headed off to the Salesians to join their novitiate in Crumlin in Dublin. And how long would you have been there? I was in Crumlin, I was in the novitiate for a year, and then I went to Maynooth after that and trained in Maynooth for a while, did philosophy there. And then in the Salesians, then it's a 10-year it's a programme training t- uh, towards uh, priesthood. Uh, so I went out and did some practical training, whereas young brother, you go out and you teach in the schools mm-hmm. or where you go on the missions. I went to school uh, to a school in Ballinacillan County Leash. And after that, then I went back and did theology in Maynooth. Uh, I did my final year then of, of diaconate year and uh, pastoral care training in that area of ministry uh, in All Hallows in Dublin. And then I was ordained then in 1991 in Croke, which I'm very proud of as well. Isn't that lovely? 
just before you do that, but who was the ordaining bishop? Bishop Amy Casey yes. was my ordaining bishop. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a grand aunt uh, who was uh, um, um, from Croke, and uh, she was an aunt-in-law of, of mm. Bishop Eamon. So there was a, a sort of a family yeah, connection, yeah. not a complete blood relative, but there was a family connection there. And, you know, and he was wonderful on that day, I must say. You know, he, you know we were really kind of... Uh, very proud to have him. And tell me, um, all your f- mates and friends, you know, what sort of reaction did they have when, I know you told me about your parents, I mean, that's one story, but, but, you, but your friends and your, the, the buddies who you used to maybe play football with or go out with or whatever. Sure, yeah, I suppose maybe some of them are a bit surprised, all right, but I think I had a group of friends in, in Palace Kenry when I was in school there, they okay. were the good buddies, and uh, I mean, maybe just talking away, we share a lot. And uh, I mean, there was a there was a wonderful atmosphere in in Palace Kenry at that time. You know, where we were we were kind of really enabled to do things for ourselves. And uh, okay. and I mean, the, I mean, I was involved in the Legion of Mary that time, and we had uh, different prayer groups. We were we were organising Taze kinds of groups, mm. and all sorts of uh, very creative. Uh, Things were going on in the school at that time, and I was involved in it, and in the choir as well, and you know, in different liturgies, and so uh, I suppose it okay. wasn't a major surprise okay. to some of the friends. Okay. Did you ever have any doubts along the way when you were when you were in seminary as to have I made the right decision here? John, I think I have doubts every day of my life. <laughs> I think we all have that. We sometimes have people that. tell you they've no doubts. Yeah. I, I, I just wonder sometimes, yes. you know, what yes. they're going through. Or, you know, I mean, I think only when, we, when we're a bit like that, the doubting Thomas yes. can I think our faith grow. Yes, you know? yes. And so you stayed in the Salesians for some time, I believe, in the ministry with young people. How, how did that come about? Or what was that all about? Yeah, well, of course, the focus is, is, is of young people with the Salesians. With the Salesians, anyway. So, I, I mean, my first appointment would have been, I, I lived in Don Bosco Home in Dublin okay. uh, after ordination. And that's a boys' home for uh, children in care. And uh, But I worked with Catholic Youth Care in the diocese uh, on their faith development team. And after that, then we set up a Salesian Youth Office and I was in charge of that for a while. I was also at this time uh, involved in the Salesian Prayer Centre in Spanish Point. And, uh, okay. and then also getting involved in vocation promotion and also communications is a big area. So I was kind of you know, involved in communications as well. So a lot of hats in the box there, you know, really in some ways. But um, but always the focus in young people. And when I eventually came to Milford Parish in Limerick, mm. then I was appointed with special responsibility for young people in the parish. So always with young people. A wonderful privilege. So the, so what's for the first, what, three or four or five years of your ordination, of your ministry, you were involved with young people? I was. Oh, no, I, I've been involved all through. Is that all the way through? All okay. through, yeah. yeah. Uh, so for the first few years, I was in Dublin. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I moved to Limerick after that. And then what happened then? Yeah, well, then when I came to Limerick, then I was appointed to the, uh, well, I was on the retreat team uh, for a while as well, the okay. retreat team. So that meant traveling all around the country to various uh, secondary schools oh. and giving retreats to the sixth and fifth years, generally senior classes we would have given retreats to. And they were a most wonderful experience. Actually. I, mean, I, I mean, the wonderful goodness that's there in young people, you know, I, anyway, I, I have huge respect uh, for all young people and... Uh, and uh, I, they, they really brought the best in us, really, as well as a, as a retreat team. But anyway, that folded up, basically. And then those of us on the retreat team, Salesians, were appointed to the parish in Milford in Limerick. Because it's a huge um, youth parish, basically, the fact that it's located right next to University, the University of yeah. Limerick. Mm. 
And uh, in those days, my goodness, I mean, the young people were coming to the various masses. It was thronged, especially at exam time and at Christmas time. I mean, where you wouldn't have room in the church for all the people who were coming. And we were using corridors and all sorts of ways to try and fit people in and encouraging them to come to other services and they might be less popular. But, you know, it was a a great experience of, uh, of, you know, being involved in the lives of young people. And this would have been about the year, what, what 1990s? Would it, or? Let's say now, I was already in 91, mm-hmm. uh, so we're now going to about 95. I went mm-hmm. to Milford on the, with the retreat team. Uh, 94, 95, I was on the retreat team. And then in 96, into the parish then. From 96 until the year 2000, I was in the parish for four years. And then the opportunity then for a brand new secondary school that was opening in the local area of Castle Troy, uh, called Castle Troy College, was opening at the time. And um, the actual principal, who Lord rest him, has passed away uh, since, Martin Wallace was his name, he established his office in the Salesian House, you know, in the, in the six months preceding the, before the opening of the, mm. of, of the school. So he had been chatting about the fact that he had a position of chaplaincy available, you know, and he was, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I responded to that and, uh, you know, I, I expressed an interest. And uh, yeah, so I was appointed chaplain by the Bishop of Limerick, uh, Donald Murray at the time, uh, to the newly opened Castle Troy College. Of course, we opened in 2000 uh, with 164 first year students. And by the time I left six years later, we had over a thousand students in the school. Wow. So it grew enormously. Uh, today, there are 1200 students in that school. And that's now in my parish that I've returned to, of course, in Milford. In wow, Castle yes, Troy. yes. So I've come full circle. <laughs> But that must have been some experience for you, you know, to be surrounded by young people sharing their faith with you. Absolutely. But also as well, young staff as well in, in oh, the yes, school gosh. too. And I mean, the staff were just wonderful. I mean, uh, I mean, the staff grew so large. I mean, it was nearly, I don't know, I, it was 60 or 70 uh, mm, teachers mm. in the school. Like it, it was quite huge. And uh, but it was a, a great privilege uh, to be chaplain there, you know, at, at that time. And at that stage then, maybe it was time for you maybe to, to take up... Um, other positions maybe further afield, but maybe before we before we go down that road, maybe a piece of music just to, just have a break for a second. Sure. Just a second piece of music. Um, you say you'd like us to play? Uh, is it uh, "Take Lord Receive"? I think is the one. Is yes. It? Yeah. So this was the kind of a piece that was important to me. I, I've just finished a six month sabbatical before taking up my new appointment. So does we basically hand over to the Lord? You know, um, our our lives. I, I mean, sometimes we become so focused on ourselves um, that it's all about me, me, me. And yet we need to be reminded that it isn't about all about That's me. That's right. That we need to hand over ourselves to the Lord. So let's listen to this. Thanks a lot, Father Seamus. Take, Lord, receive all my liberty. My memory Understanding my entire
have given all to me Now I return it Give me only your love And your grace That's enough So that was Take Lord Receive, uh, which is a piece of choice of music of our guest on the podcast this morning, Father Seamus Madigan. Seamus, um, so just up to up to that part of the break. So we were talking about your your ministry with the Salesians and uh, the different uh, elements in terms, particularly with, of course, with the Salesians and Don Bosco's charism with youth. And then things slightly took a different turn you decided that you were going to uh to to change tack ever mm-hmm. so slightly mm-hmm. and you were leaving the solution so mm-hmm. kind of what was what prompted that change in ministry and direction sure and that that prompt actually happened during my time in castle troy college mm. now i don't know reflecting back on it would it have had something to do with my father's death i'm not sure my father died in 2001 so i was one year into the school at that stage but about a year later i i began to think i suppose about the future mm. and um and uh, so i went for some guidance uh, along this about doubts about um, vocation in the, in in the, in this in the Salesian context um not so much my priesthood, uh, you know, it was actually mm. more to do with the, the vow of poverty, really, and uh, about one, uh, needing my own sense of space and place and about wanting to kind of build a house at home. Mm. And to me, that wouldn't really have been the spirit of living in religious life 
and in the spirit of poverty. And uh, so I spent a bit of time basically, I suppose, uh, getting comfortable with the idea that it was okay to own something. Mm -hmm. Because in religious life, you don't own anything. Mm -hmm. And the idea that I might own my own house or own my own car or have my own little things, um, this was kind of um, unique to me. And yet I wanted something kind of stuff at home. I was very connected always to home and to, I suppose, the land at home in some ways. Not that I'd have made a great farmer now, don't get me wrong. (laughs) (laughs) My brother is very good at that. But uh, certainly kind of almost a spiritual connection uh, to to land and to home and to to the surroundings and to family. So that's what I did. And to do that then, there was a a leaving of the Salesians. And that was after 22 years, basically. So Mm. in about 2003, I I would have uh, changed over to the Diocese of Limerick. Of course, you can't just, uh, you know, move leave one and move join and other. join the yeah. other. Uh, the the first has to actually accept that you're mm. that they're okay to say goodbye to you, and the people who are taking you on have to be able to um, say that yes, they will take you on board. And it of course involves a letter to the Pope, uh, you know, mm. to ask for that permission mm. to do that transfer. So all of that was done, and I must say, people were so kind to me and mm. really treated me like an adult when I was making that decision. And uh, and and I haven't regretted it. And I have just a height of respect because I've had the most wonderful, warm, loving experiences of living in religious life with the Salesians. Mm. And to this day, because I've grown up with them, um, most of my best friends really are Salesians. Salesians. Yeah, and that, that move to the diocese, I suppose in one sense, people would say that was... Um, a brave move, given kind of things are the way things are with the church institutionally in Ireland, you know, that it might have been a bit easier to stay with a religious community. So from that point of view, like, how have you found it moving from the community of the Salesians, which is, was a bit more family, to the broader collective, which is the brethren of the diocese? And um, Shane, that's a very good question, because in actual fact, at the time, that mightn't have been such a huge question as mm. you might think, mm. because I was in a community, let's say, of of teachers in Castle Troy College, mm. and there was all of that, and the family were at home as well. Um, and then when I went to the military, mm. uh, there was another community there mm. also of, of serving in, in the military. Um, however, that question has become an important question for me over the last six months, now that I'm coming back to, let's say, what might be a normal, regular regular role in the diocese and about belonging and where do I belong in all of this. Mm. So that actually has been a, a big question for me of the last okay. six, six months. All right, we might come back to that one. So, sure. because you just mentioned, of course, the next stage in your journey, which, of course, was uh, serving with the military. Now, jokingly, at the start of the programme, of course, I, I was talking about your role as the head chaplain to the forces in 2016. And, of course, the the way that Oglick Neheron was so important for some of those celebrations. Mm-hmm. And I think many people have really appreciated the role of the Defence Forces because of that visibility that they had. But you were a very visible uh, face for a lot of those ceremonies. Uh, so, but I suppose, I suppose the question is, first of all, how does one become a military chaplain? And then I suppose the second part of that question is, well, what does a military chaplain do? Sure. I mean, the, the way you become a military chaplain, it was because I just knew, I, at the time I was um, a spokesperson for the bishop here in Limerick. And uh, uh, just before I became a military chaplain, and I had heard that maybe the position in Limerick might become available. This is the this is the position at Sarsfield Barracks. In Sarsfield Barracks mm. in Limerick, yeah, in two thousand six. Uh, so I was 
I had expressed an interest then, basically, in that mm. uh, in that role, and uh, the bishop appointed me to it. So uh, that's how you know. So uh, the way you become a military chaplain is is basically it's an appointment of the bishop of wherever that barracks is. Right. That's the way it happens. Okay. Um, and yeah, as you said, I mean, uh, I, I spent nine years, wonderful years there in Sarsi Barracks in Limerick. Wonderful, wonderful people there. <laughs> and I just then suddenly the job of uh, surprisingly came up in 2015, very unexpectedly, because we all expected that the head chaplain that was there would see through the centenary mm. of mm. 2016. Mm. But suddenly um, it, everything changed. And, right. uh, okay. Suddenly I was going forward for the, for, for the for job. Head chaplain. And so I suppose many people will wonder, well, what, what, does, what does a military chaplain do? And I suppose one of the things that always strikes me about it is chaplains in the Irish Defence Forces are a little different from their colleagues in the US or the UK mm-hmm. because technically their rank is chaplain to the forces. They don't hold military rank per se. Is that That's right? right? That's correct. We actually assume the rank of whoever we're speaking to. Right. So one moment you're a private and the next moment you might be a lieutenant colonel or a colonel. Right. And so it depends who you're talking to. So generally... In most conversations, we would uh, address anyone in the Defence Forces by their first names. Right, okay. And, um, <coughs> however, if you're in formal company, you might just maybe express it more formally. But, mm. but in general kind of company, yeah. Mm. Um, so that's unique to, to Irish, to Ireland and Irish Defence Forces. Not completely unique, though other militaries do have that around the world too. Mm. And interestingly, the British Navy have the same system. Oh, right. But okay. not the British, the, not, the, not, not, the, the Army. not the Royal Air Force or not the, um, the, the Army. The, the Army yeah. Okay, we're good. So I suppose, um, I suppose people say, well, what, you know, in terms of the, the role of a, of a chaplain in that kind of scenario, because it's, I suppose, part of it, I suppose, is people kind of wonder, well, what does the Army or what does the Defence Forces do? Uh, you know, unless you see them kind of helping the, if something goes, there's a flood or something like that. I suppose it's it's kind of understanding what happens behind the barrack walls, I suppose, is part of the, the question. But of course, you're dealing with um, people that are training to do things that could be quite difficult in difficult circumstances. Yeah. And also looking at it from the point of view of... For some of them, of course, they're married, so there's their families to look That's after right. as well. That's right. You I mean you've already answered the question, mm. really? I mean, I mean, there is a ministry there to accompany the soldier, mm-hmm. but also as well to accompany their family. Mm. Mm. And also, you're involved. Uh, you know, when train when recruits are training, you know, I mean, they'll bring up moral questions that sometimes it's the chaplain might approach that. You know, about holding weapons and being trained to kill, and mm. uh, you know that sort of defence. How does that square? Mm. with with things and uh, so those kind of questions will sometimes come to the chaplain mm. uh, to try and deal with and um but also as well just to accompany them sometimes in training and different times i mean they can it can be a tough time uh, for some of the young people it could be their first time away from home mm-hmm. and so you're there basically as a presence <clears throat> and what's unusual about the chaplain is they're a permanent presence mm. in the barracks that they live on site yeah. And uh, and of course, then not alone that, but there's constant movement of soldiers. There's some of them are going overseas and coming home and all of that. So there's the families at home in mm. the midst of all that. And then there's the various liturgical kind of times of the year. St. Patrick's Day used to be huge inside Limerick mm. and, and mm. also Christmas Eve. Mm. I mean, I have wonderful memories of being in Sarsal Barracks uh, during those times. And also as well, I mean, you have funerals and you have uh, all different sorts of 
uh, things happen. People die in uh, and all would sorts there, of situations. Yeah, would but, there be kind of the you know the, the, I, I hate putting it this way, but the kind of the hatch match dispatch and for those families, like looking the, those big ceremonies of life, those transitions in life of baptisms, weddings, sure, sure. funerals, that, yeah, you, all that type of thing. All as well. of that is kind of part mm. of your job, and that certainly takes up time. Liturgy, I mean, uh, those kind of rites of passage, sort of liturgies, mm. are kind of important. Um, but also as well, of course, the chaplain does get to go overseas as well with, mm. the, with the soldiers. I mean, that's an important part of it, too. Indeed. And I was just actually going to bring that up because you have done one, two, three. You've done four uh, <laughs> yeah. deployments overseas. Yes, yes. Now, one of them caught my eye because it was <laughs> it was a similar deployment that I did myself, but I obviously wasn't in a military capacity. But you've, you, you, sir, you, 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 you deployed to Kosovo in 2007. You were deployed to Chad in 2009, to Lebanon in 2013, and Syria in 2021. Now, many people would be familiar with Lebanon and the Irish forces serving with yes. the UN. Now, these were all UN deployments. Um, Syria, maybe. Chad and Kosovo, they probably mightn't have registered those ones. But of course, our defence our defense forces have served widely with the UN mm-hmm. since our first involvement in Congo in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, uh, actually, Kosovo was a NATO mission. Oh, right. OK. But it was UN mandated. Right. Which is slightly different. OK. And uh, there is a big difference sometimes between being on a NATO mission and being on a, on a, mm. on a, on a UN mission. Um, these were these were blue beret missions. Uh, whereas the one in Kosovo wasn't, wasn't. Okay. It, it was okay. Black Beret uh, okay. uh, mission, but the rest of them were Blue Beret, okay. exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I suppose I, I being someone that works in the humanitarian side, it's always when you when you there's always a bit of a tension, a, not a tension, but a kind of a joking kind of thing between humanitarians and those that serve in the military, mm-hmm. just in terms of our main. Uh, we'd be very adamant about maintaining our humanitarian space and all mm-hmm. the rest of it, sure. but at the same time, uh, I think many uh, humanitarian workers would have a high degree of respect of course for the Irish Defence Forces um, I know myself the own, my own organisations I worked with we would have worked with them in Sierra Leone at sure. some times and also we would have a once upon a time we would have had a good working relationship in Lebanon but our programme has changed there mm. as well so but I would that, sense that tension sometimes too yeah. uh, between the let's say the UN civilian workers yes. and the, uh, the military, military then who operate under, mm. the, under the UN as well uh, I mean military are generally very task orientated mm. I mean you have a job to do you get in do it and get out yeah. whereas uh, uh, civilian workers I mean are more there for the long term and it's more about process mm-hmm. and about you know uh, I suppose changing people's lives yeah. I mean not that the military are not into doing that as well yeah. they probably just create a context yes. sometimes where maybe things can just be a bit calm mm-hmm. for a number of while or maybe even generations like mm-hmm. in, in Lebanon and hopefully the change will happen through uh, the generations mm-hmm. Um then in other parts of the world there may be kind of much shorter missions mm. but um yeah, I, I'll, I'll always remember in, in Chad in particular, um, it was actually the humanitarian people that looked for the military to be mm. brought in because of the situation with Darfur and being so close. There was a lot of issues in, in that part of the eastern part of southeastern part of Chad where, you know, things like um, uh, vehicles, petrol, um, weapons, and money were were always a target, mm. or, or uh, you know, 
mm. by by <clears throat> renegade bandits and yeah. all sorts of yeah. people. It's, it's your it's your worst nightmare as a humanitarian organization that you know one of your one of your fleet is hijacked by a bandit and has a machine gun mounted on the back of it and it's driving around with your, with your logo hanging off the side of it or worse still, one of your donor's logos hanging off the side of it. And that's the situation that would have been there in Chad at the time and I still remember somebody actually, the feedback coming back to us at one stage was, you know, we sleep easier in our beds at night knowing that you're here. Mm, indeed. And in terms of, let's just take, for example, your, your deployment to, to Lebanon. So obviously Irish people were very familiar with the, the Irish Defence Forces serving in Lebanon for many, many years. We went in and we came out and we went back in again. That's right. um, and I suppose it's kind of, um, what, 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 what was your kind of experience of it? Because I suppose um, serving overseas like that, like, you know, I, I suppose I could speak to it to a certain extent in terms of, it's um, it can be very fulfilling, but at the same time, it can be very personally challenging. Mm. You, as you, you have to kind of you have to be comfortable with your own company, mm-hmm. I would say, would be part of it. But how does that work then in the context of, say, a military deployment, particularly where, for example, the guys can't come off base and it's they're just they're there for a six month tour of duty. And it's literally on off in terms of their their roles that they have to do. Sure. Are you asking about me as a chaplain there as well? Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, yeah. because I mean, the chaplains really, and I mean, from being head chaplains, well, you'd be very uh, acutely aware of this, that, I mean, you need to have a depth of spirituality in uh, in yourself, mm. basically, because your resources are going to be called on left, right and centre, especially on an overseas mission, mm. uh, you know, where the supports, let's say, a family mightn't be as readily available. Of course, I mean, with communications being so good these days, they're there too, but in the moment, in person, you know, it's the chaplain uh, that a lot of people will go to, or maybe the doctor. And we tend to work very closely together. We, ha- we did work very closely together. Um, but day to day, then for the soldier, I mean, I, I just have the hugest, uh, huge, is that the right word? Hugest, <laughs> highest, <laughs> the, the most highest admiration uh, for our defence forces mm. and their professionalism abroad. Mm. You know, I, I I remember in some of the missions where you know lads might be going out on patrol and little simple things like they know they might be going to meet a group of kids or children down somewhere in some town or but they might bring sweets in their pockets you know mm. to bring to them you know and um, they're making that connection all the time you know it's mm. um you know it's all it was all about uh, what was drummed into us all the time was we're here to create a safe and secure environment mm. and that kind of was uh, is 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 process I suppose takes time but it also takes winning hearts and minds minds of people as well that they trust us and Ireland has an enormous high credibility Mm. uh, among Lebanese people but among all people around the world um, because of our past and our history history. which is tragic in a way but in actual fact today we're held in high esteem around the world Definitely, I would. I definitely concur. Like it's, it's about as you said, building that relationship with local community, mm-hmm. um, which is key. And it's, it's as much for military. It's also the same for humanitarian actors. You, without the, the, you know, without the that buy-in, without that acceptance by the local community, you know, you you can't do what you have to do in, try, mm-hmm. in terms of trying to help them. Um, so it, it, you served with, you were appointed head chaplain in 2015. And then, of course, we had 2016 and then your various deployments as well. And I suppose, Seamus, looking back, you, you've, 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 finished, you've finished serving that time, would you call it a time of office or whichever way? Mm-hmm. You've served yeah, in sure. that role. Yeah. Looking back, what do you think both, I suppose if I break it into two parts, for you personally, what is the thing that you have taken away for you as an individual 
as from your time serving with the military? And then the second part of that is what is it that you have learned as in your vocation as a priest? Okay. You don't ask hard questions, do you? (laughs) (laughs) I might have to go back to that again, exactly which questions you've asked where, you know, kind of stuff. But um, if it's around highlights, I I, I mean, um, I mean, I just had the most amazing opportunities uh, to travel. I mean, Mm. Pope Francis is coming to my head now. I don't know why. But I mean, the opportunity to meet him and shake his hand in Rome at some of the meetings I was at, that was incredible. I mean, but also the opportunities to be in certain parts of the world, you Mm. know, uh, go out and support at Christmas time. Always made a trip with one of our generals uh, to support our chaplains overseas. Um, um. Can you give me the first part of the question? The second, that's, the, that's the first part of the question. That's your personal uh, bit. Yeah, and the personal bit, like outside the GPO, like, mm. you know, kind of stuff, um, you know, preparing a prayer in advance, uh, you know, doing the GPO part is very easy going. You just walk out there and just do I mean, The work is done at that yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, people say, God, you're very brave out there and you sound so calm and everything. But I, <laughs> I am calm, really. I mean, it's fine. You know, I know there's hundreds of thousands of people there watching, uh, watching yeah. and millions you know, watching and, television. And, and <laughs> but yeah, but a great honor. And uh, just, uh, you know, I, I'm more concerned about the, the young cadets who are inside kind of stuff. And they're all so nervous about coming out and making sure they get their drill right. Yeah, you know, yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. So, and then the second part of that was in terms of serving as a military chaplain, what way do you think or what have you learned or what way have you deepened your understanding of your own priesthood? Mm. Well, I mean, certainly the word service is, is coming to mind. But I mean, uh, yeah, uh, and maybe engaging in the brokenness of people's lives. I mean, soldiers are just male and female are just the most amazing people mm. because they are just so um, honest with you. You know, they don't hide behind, you know, pretending to, you know, doing the fine China stuff, you know, with the priest, you know, sort of stuff. They they really um, tell it as it is. And I'm not afraid to tell it as it is. So it has been an enormous experience, a a humbling experience in some Mm. ways, of being seen as kind of our padre. You know, yeah. kind of stuff. because you wear the same uniform as them when you're overseas and sometimes at home as well. Mm. If you're out in some of the hills and mountains, uh, whatever they're doing, you know, you might go and visit. But um, th- that acceptance has, has been powerful as, as, as a priest. Um, but being allowed into the lives, the real deep lives of people mm. and their journey and their struggles. I mean, that has been really very, very special. Mm. And uh, I mean, I mean, sometimes it's humbling, really to see how people will trust the Padre with their story because they, they know that the, the that the Padre is probably the only person there who doesn't have to make a report mm. because you're not part of the rank <clears throat> structure so you don't have to report to anyone above you or you don't have to inform anyone below. There is no up mm, and down, down. In, in relation to you. Mm. So it's just you as a person here you know, mm-hmm. opening yourself up to whatever's going on in your life. So uh, for, as a priest, it has been a very, very powerful uh, place to be. And also, I mean, as a priest, you're kind of involved in the suffering of people's lives and you're breaking bread, basically kind of stuff, you know, that we share with each other in mm. Eucharist. And that breaking of bread is connected with the suffering as well of all of us. Mm. And like all of those connections we may not make in our lives just daily but I was making them kind of mm. stuff when I, was, when I was there that this is the brokenness of people's lives and uh, and and of the people we served in some of those missions abroad as mm. well so a huge honour uh, for, for for priesthood um, that, that I experienced anyway and uh, you know that, that people also kind of were you know 
kept coming to you. They didn't have to come to you, mm. but they wanted to come to you. Mm. Mm. I suppose looking looking at your journey, um, I suppose with the Salesians, it was it's generally that's more a younger cohort. Um, and I suppose then moving on to the military, I suppose, again, it's a young cohort of people, kind of 20s, early 30s. Yes. I suppose without, you know, obviously respecting confidences and everything else kind of. But, you know, the kinds of questions that people that they would have asked, like the kind of, you know, um, you, you spoke about there, for example, the issues around, you know, being trained in the military, you're obviously being trained to kill. That's, you know, that's a major issue. But in terms of kind of the questions about life and the meaning of life, they would be young people that maybe would be forced to face those questions that maybe many other people, youngsters of their own age would not have to deal with. And in some ways wouldn't have not just, you know, young people, they may not have the scaffolding of life to be able to help them cope mm-hmm. with that kind of questioning. And I suppose, what were the kinds of things that came up and maybe how would you kind of respond to those ser- that searching? But, you know, because obviously there are no definite answers sometimes in life. Like, try and be <clears throat> like 19 years of age mm-hmm. and having to write your will. Mm-hmm. Most people, my my. my Members of my family have, I don't know if they've even, some of them are only thinking of writing their wills now. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so, I mean, being a very young person and maybe thinking of writing your will, like there's stuff connected with that. Mm. Going overseas, like, thank God everyone comes back fine. But there's always that little mm. uh, concern, you know. And little things like, you know, Father, will you bless this little holy medal for me? Or will you bless my cross or nana gave me this and you know so there's there's people at home involved and uh, you know there's always that concern uh, when you are, are going on overseas uh, missions that um, you know that things have happened in the past and who knows when they could happen again yeah um, mm. so as we you know kind of journeying on with you there we're coming kind of to the end of your time uh, military wise if you like so now you're coming back and I'm kind of thinking well when you go off to the military, you do your basic training and you get ready to to kind of to, to serve and you're, you're taken through what you have to do. So you've actually been doing kind of uh, basic training to readjust back to diocesan life. You were on sabbatical for a couple of months. Sure, yeah. Uh, maybe just before we go for that. Yeah. Maybe we should give Father Seamus a bit of a break just for a second. Okay. Just to get his breath. Maybe one more piece of music there. Um, uh, sure, it's a piece of music that was actually very important to me. Uh, about six, no, seven, seven, eight years ago, I did the Camino of Santiago, uh, Santiago the, the, yeah, the, the, the French way I did. So whatever that was, yeah. I think it was 775 kilometers. Took about a month, just over a month to walk it. Yeah. But I found myself at various stages of the Camino humming this and singing this away to myself. If anyone saw me, they'd think I was crazy. But it was Spirit of the Living God. Perfect. I love it. Let's just listen to that and maybe come back for the, for the final part of Father Seamus' story. Spirit of the living God Fall afresh on me
So that piece of music was Spirit of the Living God was sung there by Trinity's, the Trinity Singers and was a choice of our guest on the podcast this morning, Father Seamus Madigan. So Seamus, we're going to continue your journey. So before that, we've, we've just gone through uh, your your time in, with particularly the military as, as chaplain to the forces. And I suppose, um, jokingly, I said kind of before the break, you kind of, you were, you've, you've been doing your basic training as you face back into coming back to serve in, in diocesan ministry. And I suppose in some respects, this is actually a new challenge for you because your area ministry was with the Salesians and religious life. Then it was in the context of the arm in the defense forces. Uh, so now it's like, I suppose you could, uh, people would say, oh, it's the normal job. There's nothing normal about it, but... Sure. Um, but obviously you were doing a little bit of prep for that for the last couple of months because you were on sabbatical. Uh, now, obviously, without going too much into the personal side of it, like, but, um, you know, what, what, were, what, were, what, what did you do? Yeah, well, I suppose the sabbatical was, was coming at a time where I knew, um, Shane, that I needed to um, change mm. really here. Um yeah, I, I mean, sometimes you can lose focus too in, in, in your role when you've been in for a while. And uh, it, it has been a very pressurised uh, job in many ways to be head chaplain to the Defence Forces. Mm. Um, so it does. And I mean, it went very well and I'm very pleased and I was at it. Uh, in it at a time that it was an enormous privilege to mm, be in it. Mm. And I mean, I've had the most amazing opportunities between uh, even within Ireland, north-south kind of Ireland, East West to Great Britain uh, to um, to the Middle East and all sorts of areas that have just been wonderful, but I mean all of that takes its toll in a way. You know when you're kind of in charge and mm. when the book stops at you and even looking for new chaplains and um, you know so and and the bishops have been wonderful really in responding because things are very tight in so mm. many ways and mm. sometimes the person that's good to be a chaplain in the defence forces is actually good for 101 other jobs in your local diocese, mm. and uh, so that was always a challenge. So listen, we we went through some challenging times and I knew basically it was time to to take a break and maybe to return to Limerick it was time to come home basically mm-hmm. I just felt that so off I went and I dis- and I, I I mean Bishop uh, Brendan Lee he has just been so good to me kind of stuff I mean when I went into him um, looking for a sabbatical I had in the back of my head that I might get a year off and I certainly <laughs> I certainly realized afterwards how kind of you know um, ambitious that was <laughs> to be looking for a year <laughs> But the, but to be fair, I got six months and it was only when I was in the sabbatical I realised how lucky I am to have got six months. Mm. So I planned it and uh, he, he was very supportive of me all along through it. So I wanted to start basically in, in, in the Holy Land again, where I have visited so many times, but in uniform. Mm. And this time I wanted to go back as a pilgrim, you know, to so in the footsteps of Jesus uh, basically was the idea and uh, to you know spend time in, in the places associated with Jesus. So I spent 11 weeks in 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 the in the in the holy land uh, just outside jerusalem uh, uh, just looking out at the walls of bethlehem i mean amazing experience to have to go through those checkpoints mm. to try and get in and out of bethlehem mm. um but to visit all the places associated with jesus and to, to hear things then also from different perspectives as well from islam from uh, christianity from the judaism so I mean, wonderful kind of interaction among all the different groups. It was an ecumenical institute uh, that I was based in. And uh, I did a six-week program there. And then I spent another five weeks there doing my own thing, basically 
prayer. We were very lucky to have the Teze monks with us. They were having a big European meeting, mm. actually, in the Holy Land at that time. Oh, but they were living in the same centre I was in. So they had prayer every evening at half past five, and I would, would always join them, or most times uh, join them. Taking time to go up to the Sea of Galilee, spend time by the shore of Galilee. Mm. <clears throat> Wonderful. An experience of just, I kept being drawn to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where Jesus was crucified and where he was buried and rose from the dead. I mean, I had Mass one morning, kind of stuff to celebrate Mass, can celebrate it in the tomb. Mm. I mean, anyone who's been there will know how small it is. You oh can only really, you you can, you you can can fit four or five people into mm. it. Mm. And there was four or five of us. And we had Mass there together on the slab in which Jesus was laid in the tomb. I mean, an amazing experience. I remember putting the, my stole at one stage just on top of the slab and just saying, Lord, I renew my priesthood. You know, mm. I mean, just a refocus mm. again. So they were very, very special, emo- powerful emotional mm. moments as well. And listen, there were many others. Mm. But I mean, it was wonderful experience in in the Holy Land. I was and actually, I was just going to ask actually of the places in the Holy Land, and you've kind of answered it was it was it's the it's the Basilica of the Holy Sepulchre that kind of stood out for you. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. I kept being drawn back there, you know, and, and I mean, I I had um we we have a number of Irish Defence Forces members, of course, too, based in Jerusalem, okay. uh, um, working with uh, an organisation called UNSO, and. Um, it was it was an amazing experience to actually be asked by one of them to baptize their child. All right. But in the River Jordan. Oh, wow. OK. So, I mean, I never had that experience. Mm. And I was there saying, now, is all the paperwork uh, kind of done and above board? And, and they had yeah. been soldiers. Yeah. They had all the paperwork <laughs> above board with yeah. whatever church was there. And uh, I said, well, fine, there you go. But we had a wonderful gathering with mm. all the soldiers who were based in Jerusalem. There's only about five or six of them and their families and children mm. and uh, etc. Uh, so that was a, a most amazing experience as well. And I mean, there, there were so many others. <clears throat> Being out in the Sea of Galilee was mm. just beautiful as well. Yeah, so. yeah I, John and myself have both <coughs> been to the Holy Land and um, at different times. Mm. And for me, the, the Sea of Galilee and up around that mm. part is always beautiful. the part that, that beautiful. stands out rather than Jerusalem. The and you know, at one point we were taken out in a boat that you know Peter and the apostles would have kind of the design, yeah. the design of it yeah, somewhere. Yeah. And so. But I mean, obviously this has an engine <laughs> that takes you out in the middle of the lake. But what is most beautiful yeah, is that at one stage when they're in the middle of the lake, they turn, turn off the engine and just let it yeah. drift. Yeah. And that pew kind of 10, 15, 20 minutes of silence is just wonderful. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. No, there, there were so many uh, wonderful uh, experiences there. But Jerusalem is an amazing city. I mean, it what, is, isn't it? I, I mean, the slaughter that has happened in that city over the years and I mean, all of the troubles. And yet today it has some troubles as well, but it also has an enormous richness mm. of huge uh, varieties. Of, it's, a, it's an of, amazing, of it's an amazing it's space. It's incredible. You know. Yeah. And then, uh, sorry, after that, then I moved on to Portugal. And I booked into a wellness centre there, more to kind of go internally inside. So there was a bit of counselling and therapy. It was a resilience path I was on kind of stuff. So just a bit my own journey, kind of stuff, just to delve into that a little bit and uh, more personal stuff. And uh, there was a great healing in that too, I found. It was a beautiful centre just opened. And uh, then after that, then I came home and I went to, to America then to do what was called with the Jesuits to do the 30 day um, Ignatian spiritual exercises. Oh, wow. OK. And, I mean, that was in silence for 30 days. People can't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> 30, 30 days of silence. But I mean, I did get to talk to my spiritual director every day kind of right. stuff, who was a Jesuit priest. He was right. the rector of the house. I has connections here in, in with Chana Golden, actually. He's Kinnerk was his name. Oh, right. Ed Kinnerk. 
And uh, he, I'd say he, at some stage he may come to Ireland just to, I said, look me up and we'll we'll find the Kinnerks right. in Shanna Golden at some stage. They're and there. of course, I was telling him about the coach right. of the Limerick team being Paul Kinnerk as well. <laughs> and I said, and I'm going to that parish where, right. uh, you know, kind of, I think he played with Maudelaine Club, didn't right. he? Uh, even though he may not live there and he doesn't live there now. But uh, and we were making all these connections with him. But I mean, he was an experienced man at, uh, at um, you know, kind of accompanying people in the spiritual exercises. And that's a, he that's was, a big, uh, a big thing to understand take like 30 days is it's quite yeah. intense well I mean it is intense but I mean you won't I, I'll never get that opportunity again to, mm. to be able to mm. take this mm. amount of time yeah. and I felt very privileged I am really privileged to have had all this experience mm. uh, before coming back to Limerick uh, but um, the spiritual exercises really and, and he reminded me at one stage because uh, you know you, you have your prayer times apart from the exercises that you're doing as well but it is exercises that you're doing kind of stuff so I mean the exercise involves really is, is bringing the risen Jesus with you to various parts of scripture mm. and he'll know the parts of scripture based on your story where to bring you oh yeah you know yeah, okay. so, so mm. I mean there was a wonderful one where um, at the very beginning of it I think it was at the, in the nativity scene and you know um, you basically you're asked to ask Mary if she'll give you Jesus for a few moments just to hold the baby in your arms and talk to the baby with the risen Jesus by your side mm. you know? nice. so I mean it's an amazing thing the, the power like why did God come among us yeah. as a baby mm. I mean he could have come anyway mm. but mm. then you suddenly realise that you're holding this little baby in your arms and a bit like the Christy Dignam song like you know how can I protect you in this crazy world mm. which he wrote for uh, when his daughter Kira was and it was born in 1993 or something like that but uh, I mean the, the idea that you want to protect the baby the power of a baby mm. is enormous yeah. and mm. a baby will change the whole dynamic that's going on in a whole kind of workplace or in a family because everything revolves around the baby mm. so mm. the power of the baby and, and, the, and the anxiousness to protect the baby you know, it's very powerful. So uh, so that's just an example of one yeah. little incident of just mm. engaging and then handing the baby back to Mary and Joseph again. Mm. You know, so you put yourself into these situations. So 30 days of that, you know, kind of stuff is a powerful experience, mm. really. Mm. And it's a refocus, again, for me on um, what's important in life and on my own priesthood and my spirituality as well. Mm. So, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I'm back to it again now when I start a new job and you're being torn in different directions again. So you say, well, I mean, I promised I would do this when I was on the 30 days for exercises. <laughs> and have I done it? Well, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. At least the question is still there. Exactly. Well, that's more often that's that's the part of it to yeah. help, you know, to bring the focus back. You know, that's, that's, right, that's yeah. the whole the whole thing. Sure. So as so as suppose as we kind of draw to the end of our, our, our conversation with you, I suppose we're back to, um, if you like, Back to basics a little bit. So you're you're back now serv- serving in the diocese. Yes, back to Limerick. Back to Limerick. And I just, one of the things, um, love liturgy. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Uh-huh. I must say. I mean, Shane, there was a time when I used to be asked to go up and read in church. And, you know, you'd be so nervous mm. and kind of embarrassed about getting up to read in public yeah. and people are still like that to this day so I feel for people mm. when they're uh, you know in that way but I suppose practice and practice and practice and being involved in it over the years you, you're kind of they're very humbled in the position that you're in you can say do you know something I'm in a role here that can actually speak so loudly and clearly uh, of God's love uh, to so many people in situations and done through liturgy and symbol uh, it's just uh, it's just a great honor you know to 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 be able to facilitate that and i think 
I hope anyway that I bring a certain creativity uh, mm. to all of that. Um, I'm not sure how creative I am at the moment, really, but you know, well, yeah, people people will say that you know you kind of you involve yourself in a certain way that they like and mm. that, they, yeah. that there's mm. meaning behind your words, and so I think it's somehow about. It's communication as well, yeah, really. But yeah. uh, but I do love liturgy because I, I do think that, I mean, there's enormous meaning of, of God being present with mm. us, whether it's liturgy, you know, kind of stuff. Uh, you know, at one stage when I was on the 30-day exercises, just to give you this one a, a little example, I mean, we had mass every day in a community setting with the Jesuits, even though we weren't talking, but we were ripped to reply mm. to the mass. But uh, one of the occasions I was asked, listen, would you ever go out to the, there was a kind of a gazebo or a gazebo, Anyway, out in the wilds. Right. And you were surrounded by the, um, the, the mountains of the Rockies or right. whatever it was. You know, and he says, I want you to go there on your own to say mass. Okay. Mm. Now, this was the most powerful experience. I know I was on my own. Yeah. But like, yeah. boy, was I not on my own. Right. Mm. Because mm. I was surrounded by the absolute wonder of God all around me in creation and in life mm. of the wild. And, uh, you very, know... Uh, Telly Hard de Chardin, very much kind of that idea of the, uh, the mass of the universe. I, it was just incredible, really. Mm. I, I, I mean, I just felt something really very powerful. And I, I, I think I feel that in all the time. So, like, I mean, when I'm, uh, you know, honoured to be doing the baptisms of people and, uh, you know, now I'm suddenly realise I'm overwhelmed with, uh, in a parish where I think I have 180 children for confirmation next year and I have 180 for Holy Communions and we're trying to figure out it's logistics at this stage. But I mean, like, it's logistics right now. But yeah. when we get into it, I hope, again, that mm. the love of liturgy and, uh, you know, bringing a creative side to it to make it meaningful, not just for me, but somehow to transmit mm -hmm. that uh, to others who are with me celebrating. Father Seamus, I was just thinking that um, it's been a number of years now since you were you're really based in the parish. Um, do you think you find something different in the parish now from when you first left? You know, you've been with the army for, for 10 years or whatever. John, I'd say, I'd say you're right. I, I mean, e even already I can see that things have changed enormously. Mm. You know, I mean, uh, it's going to be a bit of a challenge, really. Uh, yes. You know, about, um, you know, trying to encourage people to get involved in their parish. Mm. Because I think yeah, in the parish I'm based in now is one of the largest in the diocese, mm. as far as I'm aware. There's about 20,000 people in it. And... Um, yeah, so it's, and, and I mean, there's a wonderful, um, I, I described them, 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 to them recently in Mass that, you know, there's a wonderful backbone of, 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 of people who come to daily Mass. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. have a wonderful group there. Mm. But how to sort of um, encourage people. Look, all I wanted to do in my very first weekend there was get the message out to everybody. You are all welcome mm. yeah. and I mean yeah. I think that is the spirit of and I would have used that in, in in various even kind of commemoration prayers that would have led I would have used the words compassion inclusion and engagement mm. CIE yeah. I keep reminding compassion inclusion engagement I says every interaction that Jesus had contained those three elements compassion inclusion and engagement and I would like to see that maybe our parish mm. going forward not that it hasn't been there before of course it has but that will be my stress that'll be in the back of my mind all the time mm. compassion inclusion and engagement and trying to bring <clears throat> people in to know that they are this is your spiritual home mm. and mm. listen like any home we say blood is thicker than water mm. kind of stuff you yeah, know no matter yeah, what happens yeah. to you in life or what trouble or difficulties you go through or what you think might be barring you mm. from actually going to your spiritual home i want you to know please 
just come. Mm. You are welcome. The other change, I suppose, you, I suppose I was, I was just thinking for you um, is the fact that you've gone from um, religious community uh, to an army community, uh, much more now to kind of a parish setting. And I suppose one of the things, I suppose, the differential between kind of diocesan clergy and 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 religious those in religious life is uh, by inclination di- or not an inclination but by maybe by training and by circumstances diocesan clergy have to be a bit more lone wolf you know there that sense of um because they're responsible for the parish as opposed to being living living in community if you like and just from that perspective you know you're very gregarious Seamus let's be honest mm-hmm. um how do you think that side of it might work yeah, I, I listen. I, I exactly what you say is true because uh, I mean, up to now, I've landed myself in situations where the community is physically mm. uh, present with you. Mm. In Dawson priesthood, it's not the same. There's a sense in which you have to go out mm-hmm. and kind of engage and make it happen. And as you say, as you rightly kind of observe there, Shane, I am a kind of an extrovert. <laughs> I was described by my spiritual director on the spiritual exercises as a joyful extrovert. <laughs> but I mean, we need okay. to actually yeah. go out there. And, mm. and I think um, the movement now towards working in teams mm. is going to be helpful because we're already, I mean, we've already established our WhatsApp group among the team kind of so, so that we'll meet kind mm-hmm. of very regularly. And... Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, the, the group now is the parish group. It's a very different setting to the ones. It's not physically, let's say, in the one building mm. that I would have been mm. used to up to now. It's a different approach. Uh, again, I can't say that I haven't been fearful mm. a- about this new transition. I have been, but I've certainly come into it with a great positivity that, you know, we're going to make this work some way. Okay. Father Shemus, thanks a lot indeed for, for sharing those wonderful memories with us. Um, and maybe it's time for go, to go for our third or fourth piece of music at this stage. I'm prompted to play one that you chose early on. I think it's maybe an appropriate time to play it. It's by the Vard Sisters. The Vard Sisters is right, yeah. This is the one Tell called... Tell us about that one. Yeah. Yes, listen uh, by the Vard Sisters. And I suppose it's a reminder to me sometimes to shut up and, and, <laughs> and, and, and to actually just take a little bit of time out to listen to the voice of God. Perfect. Come back and join us again in part three where we read and reflect on the Word of God. Oh, oh, oh. 